0: Hello and welcome to the Own It podcast with me, Iona Bain, and my dad, Simon Bain. I'm a writer, speaker, and author of a new book all about young people and investing called Own It. My dad, Simon, was an award-winning business and finance journalist who retired in 2016 and came to work with me in my business. And we thought, why don't we start a podcast together since we're living under one roof during lockdown? So here we are aiming to have funny, frank and fascinating conversations about finance with some expert guests joining us along the way. I want to give a big shout out to Graham, who tweeted me to say, really enjoyed the podcast and have now listened to episode one too. Interesting concept to explore these issues from two perspectives that I fall between and much to learn as a result. Thanks to your dad too. How nice of you to say, Graham. And I really appreciate your suggestion that we should cover how much young people should be saving into a pension. It's a very complicated area, but one I'm keen to cover in detail. And next week, we'll have a top draw guest that will hopefully shed some light on that issue. So watch this space. Just a reminder that you can now watch last week's podcast on YouTube, separated into two videos. There's one on the GameStop story and one on the Lifetime ISA, featuring my full uncut filmed interview with Nathan Long of Hargreaves Lansdown. So search for Young Money Blog on YouTube and I'll include links in the show notes. Now, on with the podcast. So looking forward to coming out of lockdown?
1: Oh boy, yes! Bring it on.
0: <laughs> so I take it you'll be down in Shoreditch partying on the twenty-first of June, then.
1: Um, if not before. No, I say that. <laughs>
0: no, probably not. No, we'll uh, we'll wait until June and okay. then uh, let the good times roll. Good. The other big story this week, other than the roadmap out of lockdown, is the rather sharp fall in Bitcoin's value. Mm. It has been on a real astronomical journey lately, mm. but its value dropped by 23% at time of recording. Mm. And there have been many theories put forward to explain this, but some are more credible than others, shall we say.
1: Well, people who are interested in Bitcoin tend to get their information from other people who are interested in Bitcoin, and the platforms which promote it and sell it are always telling you that everybody's buying Bitcoin. Um, Mm. And when the price falls, ah, more people are buying Bitcoin now because the price has fallen, but they don't give much idea as to to why these things happen.
0: Yes, it's true. It used to be the case that every time the price of Bitcoin went up, you'd get press releases in your inbox from platforms very interested in selling cryptocurrency that would say, look, Bitcoin's going gangbusters, it's party times, you know, get the champagne out. And then when Bitcoin would fall... It'd be tumbleweed. Yes. It's not like that anymore. You do get these platforms coming out providing explanations, but they are less than satisfactory because what they tend to say is, well, it's just people banking their profits. And you're thinking, this is a lot of people banking their profits all at the same time. And how come you don't see these same swings in other assets? Yes. And I think the answer is, is that it's more than people banking their Mm. profits. There are other bigger factors at Mm. play that sometimes the platforms maybe don't want to discuss.
1: Isn't it something to do with the miners?
0: Yes. So I have read that a big Bitcoin miner essentially put through lots of Bitcoins in one transaction and then dumped them all. And that meant that there was a drop in the value of Bitcoin, but not a spectacular one. But this spooks a lot of investors. And the whole thing really with Bitcoin at the moment is that it's a market populated by new and relatively inexperienced investors who get very easily spooked by any fall in the price. And they think that this means it's going to drop catastrophically. So they get out. Um, and I think that's p- probably what's explaining the volatility more than people just saying, oh, I think I'll bank my gains Indeed. now. Indeed.
1: Uh, along with their big hero, Elon Musk, of course, who, uh, who tweeted mm-hmm. that Bitcoin was too expensive. Yes. And all of a sudden he's not the richest billionaire now on the planet and we're supposed to feel sorry for him.
0: Yes. And strangely, <laughs> that meant that he was basically determining his own fortune through his tweets. It would appear so. So in theory, if he were to just tweet Bitcoin looks good. Buy it again then well, suddenly he'd be the world's it, richest man again and it
1: will probably happen
0: yeah this is it very very strange the turn of events of
1: people's words though is interesting isn't it
0: yes absolutely so is this a new phenomenon whereby one man can determine a company's value or an investment's value um in in such a spectacular way
1: well it, it reminds us of the um the ratner effect doesn't it gerald ratner this is more my time, but it was the, almost thirty years ago. Made his after dinner speech, in which he said his company's products were crap, um, <laughs> and he now earns his money and has done for the last thirty years from making after dinner speeches about how that after dinner speech bankrupted him, <laughs> which is pretty unusual. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are other examples, you know, of people saying the wrong thing. There was Michael O'Leary, of course, who calls his customers idiots all the time. <laughs> yes, um, tells them to f off. Um, there was Helen Mirren who was the ambassador for L'Oreal. Um, who said that their products probably did F all. Um, (laughs) But these things don't actually move share prices. They just make the people look rather stupid.
0: Yes, yes. And they might make you think twice about using their products and services. Um, But really, Elon Musk is the first character who mm. can really change markets based on a tweet in that's
1: more so than donald trump you know? well i was going to say he's kind
0: of the donald trump of the yes. business world except he's even more powerful because really his words do matter and his words do have weight tangible effects they do have a tangible effect exactly mm. um thinking about bitcoin i mean yes we're seeing all this volatility and a lot of people will argue that that is an inevitable byproduct of this being a very new market of lots of retail investors being in this market, but perhaps institutional investors, and by that we mean the big guys, Mm. the fund houses, the people looking after our pensions. They're not in the the Bitcoin market yet. When they start to move into that Mm. market more, it'll all stabilise and it won't be quite so volatile and it will start to look and feel a lot more like gold. Yes,
1: except that gold is actually very volatile.
0: Well, this is um, true. It's, it's, yeah,
1: you know, if you look at the the graph on gold, it's probably as volatile as Bitcoin in its own way over over a longer period. But I think uh, a lot of talk about institutional investors coming in, um, and it's you know young, inexperienced investors that you were talking about tend to think, well, they're doing it, so why shouldn't I? But they have a totally different position. Yeah, it's not their money. Mm. They're putting in a tiny amount of their assets usually. It's a bit experimental. No one's going to fire them if it goes wrong, frankly. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we should we should be wary of that because institutions and they also find it much easier to buy it. Yeah. Elon you know, Musk isn't sat there worrying about his 36 character code written on a piece of paper. Yeah. He's got firms processing all this, you know, which other people have to think very carefully about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because for anyone watching or listening to this who doesn't hold bitcoin and is curious about how you actually go about buying bitcoin mm. it's incredibly complicated and it does come with risks because bitcoin exchanges cryptocurrency exchanges they have been hacked people's wallets have been stolen and then they've lost all their bitcoin and a huge amount of you know bitcoin value has passed through the criminal markets in this way
1: i think it was estimated at one point that almost half of all bitcoin transactions were um were criminal yeah yeah <laughs> and and of course the the worrying thing is that the the marketing of these things uh, does is targeted at and does appeal to these inexperienced young people that we're talking about um mm-hmm. and of course the fca has clamped down a lot of this kind of marketing yeah the uh, regulator but uh, it's all out there. You'll know better than I do on social media.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yesterday we had the hashtag stock market trending on Twitter throughout the evening. So I assume that's because U.S. markets were opening at that time. Right. People across the pond were looking at their portfolios first thing and they were tweeting images and memes of people screaming and crying and panicking and sweating as if to indicate that they felt that it was all over Suddenly, we've had this massive (laughs) drop. And to be honest, I think those kinds of trends, hashtags like stock market and the kind of memes that are attached to it, are everything that is wrong with the hashtag stock market investing today.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But then also, we have to think about the environmental implications of cryptocurrency, which which are not nothing.
1: No, you mentioned young people. They are, are, we are told, the most concerned of all about the whole green agenda and rightly so. Um, but, uh, you know, Bitcoin has, has a tremendous, horrendous record as far as that's concerned. I'll just read you something from here. Um, the, uh, the total energy consumption of the Bitcoin network per year is higher than the monthly electricity needs of the whole of Japan. This is a Japanese commentator uh, writing. But Japan's electricity powers homes, businesses and people's lives. Bitcoin mining only powers the creation of more Bitcoin.
0: Well, he said it, hasn't he? And I mean people might not realise just how wasteful the production of Bitcoin is because it has to be mined and it can't be mined using your trusty Apple Mac on your (laughs) lunch break. You know, your your mate Rob can't do it from his shed, you know, before he goes to football. You have to have a supercomputer. And that supercomputer takes up enormous energy when it's mining Bitcoin. And these supercomputers have a very short shelf life before they have to be replaced. And it's something like well over 90% of these computers don't last any longer than two years before having to be junked.
1: And they don't mine any Bitcoin at all, apparently. That's true. It's only the successful ones that crack the mathematical formula that Mm -hmm. actually have, have been worth the investment in the first place. Yeah. And the picture I saw today in, in the paper, a sort of stack of Bitcoin mining machines in China. You know, it looked like, I don't know, there must have been dozens of them. Yeah. And these are all supercomputers all stacked together. I mean, these, these are behind the scenes elements that nobody thinks about.
0: Yes. And therefore, it's interesting to note not only that Elon Musk has put so much money into Bitcoin, being the head of a clean car firm, ostensibly, <laughs> but wow. also the likes of Uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter, who has pledged to make his firm as environmentally friendly Mm. as possible, has also promised to... He's just
1: bought 1.7 billion of Bitcoin this week.
0: Indeed, indeed. (laughs) So, you know, how do we square that circle? That's the question. Well, that brings us on to today's guest. I'm very pleased to welcome Alice Ross from the Financial Times to the podcast. Alice has been a journalist at the FT for over a decade, holding various roles such as Deputy Editor of the Weekend Money section and Editor of the FT newsletter Trade Secrets, which looks at various issues affecting globalisation, including climate change. And that's why I'm talking to Alice today. She's the author of a new book, Investing to Save the Planet, which is an incredibly thorough introduction to the world of green investing, i.e. putting your money into funds and companies that are actively contributing to the fight against global warming. The book was born out of Alice's various conversations with, as she puts it, rich people and private bankers, and her realisation that billions are being poured into potential climate change solutions, and that green investing is rising up the economic agenda fast. The question is, can ordinary people like you and me get in on the action? Let's find out. So Alice, welcome to the Own It podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Just give us a potted history first of your career, how you got into writing for the FT and how you came to write this new book.
2: Oh gosh, that's quite a long one. Um, (laughs) So, well, I mean, I guess to cut a long story short, I got into journalism in my mid-twenties, I think. I had been doing a masters and then I was thinking about doing a PhD in political philosophy. So I've no idea how I ended up in financial journalism, but um, anyway, I ended up working for a financial magazine. And then from there I moved to the FT, I think when I was 29, 28, 29. And um, yeah, I've done a variety of different jobs at the FT. I started out on the personal finance section. So the weekend section sort of letting people know what they should do with their pensions and investments. Um, and then I moved to the markets team, I wrote about currencies and then I moved to Frankfurt and I wrote about um, German companies and the ECB, things like that, uh, monetary policy and I was in Washington for a short while and then I uh, was editing the FT Wealth magazine and it was when I was editing the FT Wealth magazine that I had the idea to do the book um, because I had been talking with a lot of you know, fairly rich um, families and often talking to the sort of the younger generation, like the next generation. And they were often really interested in the environment. And so they were like putting their money towards environmental investments. And that was the first time that I started to hear about these companies that were doing sort of new things in terms of trying to cut emissions. And that was really interesting and exciting to hear about because, you know i was feeling quite depressed about climate change at the time this was 2019 um you know before the pandemic hit and there was something else to be <laughs> stressed about but um and i deliberately wanted to write the book as a way of sort of saying to people like these are the positive things out there that you can do so i haven't gone into the sort of stressful stuff around climate change in it i i actually sort of say in the introduction like i'm i'm just going to assume that you you know the issues and you don't need to hear all of the scary stuff again, like if we don't get our act together, what's going to happen? Because I was trying to keep it positive and, you know, you don't have to go far at all to, to see all of that negative sort of scary stuff about the climate. So I was trying to say, here are some of the positive things you can do. So that was that was how it came about.
0: Yes, I like the fact that your book is very no-nonsense. You just get straight into the solutions and you don't wrap it up and you are very honest about the current state of green investing and what could be improved. But you're also giving people that information about how they can make better choices on a on a practical level. And I think that's certainly been missing from, you know, the information sphere up till now. I haven't seen anything really uh, that delivers that information for people in a way that they can understand in one place because I'm sure you can find the information out there on the internet but it's bringing it all together in one place that's really valuable.
2: Yeah that was interesting to discover actually because when I was writing the book I um, you know it's obviously looking around for other material or like you know similar books that I could read and I couldn't really find anything in book form that had pulled it all together in this sort of quite simple hopefully quite simple way I mean you know of course there's loads of great articles out there as you say on the internet and you know newspapers have personal finance sections that are often looking at this trend of green investing so you know you can certainly find out a lot of stuff but it as you say it's like piecemeal like going from one thing to another so I was trying to wrap it all together in a sort of relatively accessible hopefully easy to read place Um, yeah so that's how it came about really interest in that whole area has exploded in the past year why do you think that's the case I think just people are really waking up to climate change people are really aware that you know this is a huge issue and um, you know there have been some some reports sort of saying what will happen if we don't get our act together if we don't really try to cut emissions and governments are taking it seriously you know in in the UK um, we've you know Boris Johnson has been accelerating the you know the route towards electric vehicles it was 2040 then 2035 and currently it's 2030 to have you know all new vehicles being electric which is going to require massive investment into infrastructure and all sorts of stuff like it's going to require huge changes to the way that we are right now um and so you know people have been taking it seriously i think as well in the past year alone esg was already you know a, a trendy thing in like 2019 and before but interestingly the pandemic I think did accelerate the interest in ESG you might have thought that it could have gone the other way in a way like you know when people were worried about the global economy you might think oh well people didn't you know ESG would have been a sort of nice to have but not a must-have or something but interestingly it didn't play out like that I think people realized that ESG was actually more important than than ever before and that we you know, we had this opportunity to, to build back better. This is a, a phrase that a lot of people have been using, whether governments or um, campaigns. And, um, and the, you know, the other thing, it wasn't just about the environment, like, you know, ESG stands for environmental social governance. And so it's three different things that a company could be in order to be in an ESG fund or in order to be considered to have a high ESG score. And we saw that a lot with... Um, you know, in the pandemic uh, that companies that were treating their workers well were suddenly more, you know, more favoured and invest. And it didn't go down well if companies were like, you know, not supporting their workers or laying them off. And again, I think people are a lot more aware of that. So that was really great.
0: So do you think that there will be a real shift post pandemic? Because after the financial crash, there was the Occupy movement and there were hopes that that might lead to some long-lasting change in the financial system and arguably that didn't really happen but now do you think there is both the opportunity and the appetite for change and do you think that the financial industry will respond this time around in a way that arguably it didn't after 2008
2: that's a really good point i think what happened with the occupy wall street movement was that that was very much a movement from outside the financial industry. So it was trying to influence the financial industry, but very much from outside. And so the insiders in the industry, I think, were more able to ignore it or dismiss it as you know, something more niche. The big difference this time is that it is happening within the industry. And it's happening really at the highest levels within the industry. I mean, take BlackRock, for example, which is the world's largest investment manager, Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, um, has said well he keeps saying it but he had a particularly influential letter in January 2020 where he said you know climate change is a serious issue and companies need to have a plan for how they're going to tackle climate change and then um, this year in January 2021 when he does an annual letter that he does to shareholders he then said that you know BlackRock might consider selling out of companies if they weren't if they didn't have a plan for climate change and if they weren't sort of looking at cutting their emissions. So from the head of the world's largest investment manager, that's really significant. And, you know, companies have to listen to what BlackRock says. I mean, another a, a separate question or a related question is, you know, are BlackRock actually going to Follow through on this, you know, is it just talk because they know it's trendy and it sounds good. Um, And so, you know, that has raised eyebrows slightly in the industry because BlackRock actually has a terrible record when it comes to voting on climate change resolutions at the companies it invests in. Um, But, you know, they are saying it and um, and other people are following as well, you know you you do have huge pension funds that are saying we 're not going to invest in fossil fuels. um you have Mark Carney, who is you know the former head of the Bank of England, has set up this um, task force to um that will basically say that companies have to. Uh, have to tell you what they're going to do about climate change and that's going to become mandatory. It's not yet, but already investors are trying to put pressure on companies to to have a plan for climate change. So it's just the, the conversation is much more inside the financial industry this time. So that gives a lot more hope that this is a sort of a permanent shift in the way that companies or investors are, are thinking about climate change.
0: Mm, yes, it's funny you mentioned about BlackRock and the doubts over whether or not it will really follow through with its ambitious targets, because it has only just recently said that it wants to remove as much carbon dioxide from the environment as possible by 2050 at the latest. But that begs lots of questions about um, what proportion of the companies that they invest in will be able to hit those targets, you know, because they're not necessarily going to be responsible alone as albeit a very powerful investor, they can't drive that change alone. But do you think that just
2: having that ambitious pledge does go a long way? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not just BlackRock, you know, other huge investors are also saying similar things. You had Aviva investors the other day, um, and they were saying that they would they would sell companies that weren't making efforts to, to cut their carbon emissions, that they would do that. Of course, the next step in this is, is seeing results. But Um, you know you also have uh, you have huge pension funds that are taking this very seriously so the largest pension fund in the world is the the Japanese government pension fund and they have they take climate change really seriously and they're sort of a a leader in this and so if the largest pension fund in the world is is really looking at the carbon impact of their investments and shifting deliberately into cleaner companies then that's you know that's going to really change things and they you know they also have the clout to hire and fire investment managers and they famously um did fire a huge investment manager that's not (laughs) hasn't been named publicly but everyone knows who who they fired and they (laughs) I can see you do as well and um and they you know they moved to someone else that they thought was greener and this you know this really makes waves in the industry um you know ultimately investors and companies have to do what what their shareholders and other investors want them to do so and you know the climate change uh, concerns they're very real and they're not going away anytime soon governments are taking it seriously regulators are taking it seriously so it's just so much more part of the conversation than it used to be.
0: Maybe this is just the utopian view that a younger person might take but, but they may see you know, investing to save the planet as, as just what investing should be. And they may, may be rather horrified at the idea that their money isn't automatically going into companies that are at least, you know, not harming the environment and hopefully actively contributing to the fight against climate change. But your book suggests that actually individuals do need to engage with this, um, as well as obviously the big institutional investors. But for a young person who is thinking rather idealistically, they might think, well, why do I have to engage with this?
2: Mm, That's interesting. So I think there are two parts to this, depending on how far you want to go. So firstly, if your if your money is in, you know, a bog standard pension fund or if you bought, you know, a sort of a general equity fund or something that maybe someone advised you to or you were just, you know, buying the stock market in some way. Uh, that's definitely not going to be investing with with the environment or with saving the planet in mind. It's going to own probably just all of the major companies that are out there. But those, of course, include the oil and gas companies. Um, You know, they they include hugely polluting companies. Um, And you're particularly interestingly likely to find those companies in income funds. So if you've bought some sort of a UK income fund or something, almost certainly going to be stocked full of oil and gas companies because they have historically paid really good dividends to investors. So income fund managers love those kind of oil and gas companies for that reason, because they pay a good dividend. It's nothing to do with... The environment if you want to say okay i want to have my investments you know um going towards companies that are keeping the environment in mind an obvious next step would be to put it into a fund that is called esg that says it's an esg fund so that's the next step but this is you know what i go into in the book a lot is that just not all esg funds are the same and people are often really shocked to discover what's in their esg fund i interviewed um One guy who um, was with uh, his money was with Nutmeg, um, which is, you know, an online provider, and he had um, decided to start investing. So he'd bought, you know, their ESG fund and and then he decided to see what was actually in it. And he was really shocked to see that BP made up one percent. And it just wasn't at all what he associated with an ESG fund. And he was really confused and and any. I sort of stepped in to try and help him trace back how that, that had happened, that BP was in his ESG fund. Um, and it was sort of fascinating, I, I go into it in detail in the book, but how all of these different people and decisions are involved in calling a, a fund ESG. But basically, BP is often in ESG funds because for two, for two reasons. Firstly, it has good governance. Generally, it's seen as a, a company that has good governance. So it can be in an ESG fund because of the G, not because of the E and you do get that a lot. So ESG, the environmental side of that is only one third of of what's actually going into those funds. So you need to be aware of that. Another reason that a company like BP might be in an ESG fund is because it's doing better environmentally than its peers. So like the other oil and gas companies that might not have said that they're going so much into renewables or that they're trying to cut carbon emissions by as much they won't be as good as BP so you know BP is you know BP and Shell are both leaders within that group where they've said that they're aiming for net zero carbon emissions by 2050 which when you think about it for an oil and gas company is quite amazing in some ways but of course and you know they're buying up loads of renewable energy assets at the moment and they're really trying to diversify into that but nonetheless I mean oil and gas still makes up the vast majority of what they're doing um and, you know, that's a personal choice, I think, for an investor. Like, maybe you're like, yeah, that sounds reasonable and I want to support that and I want to help them make this energy transition. Or maybe you're like, well, I just don't want to earn any money money at all from oil and gas. So, uh, you know, and as I say in the book, there's no right or wrong answer for that. But it's, you know, it's a very personal decision. Yeah.
0: And it's about making an informed choice, isn't it? It's not about getting you know, a nasty shock because you're assuming so much when you go into an ESG fund and you think that it will completely fall in line with your values, which may be very personal to you. Um, So yeah, you have to get informed. Um, As with so many aspects of finance, as you say in the book, there's a real alphabet soup of terms associated with green money, which can be really confusing to the lay investor. So if you had to highlight three or four terms everybody should really understand what would they be oh
2: gosh well ESG we've covered that so that's environmental social governance so that's probably the most important one Um, uh, ETF is another really helpful one exchange traded fund um, and that is usually so that's a, a type of a passive fund And these types of funds are um, cheaper than actively managed funds. So um, often if you buy, if you want to buy a fund, which is, you know, just would buy, have hold lots of different companies in it. So it's spreading your risk rather than just directly buying the shares of one company. Um, Often a fund might be actively managed. So it's got a fund manager making all of the decisions and saying, we should have that company is better than that company, or, you know, I like it for whatever reason. But you know studies have shown that it's really hard for active fund managers to outperform the general stock markets and they're also charging you money for the supposed ability to outperform so you know some fund managers will do well but but increasingly the trend is moving towards passive funds which are just tracking existing stock market um, indices now interestingly that might seem like that's a problem for green investment because of course if you're you know you're trying to make a choice with green investment you're trying not to hold all of the companies that are in the FTSE 100 or something um but you know they are they are creating ESG ETFs, <laughs> so passive funds that are tracking an index, but that are deliberately either overweighting the better companies and underweighting the worst ones, or not not holding the the worst ones at all. Um, so impact investing is a relatively new term, um, and it can mean lots of different things. Again, as with ESG, there's no like, um, there's no agreed upon definition of impact investing. So if you're impact investing, it means you're investing with the aim of making an impact. So either an impact on the environment or on society. Impact investing definitely isn't necessarily green either. It could be, you know, it's increasingly more about, you know, some social aspect of, you know, for example, improving female education or something like that. That could be a type of impact investment. Um, But the the sort of way it differs is whether you're investing for a return. So you've got philanthropy, and then you've got impact investment, and then you've got sort of like normal investment for for a financial return. And impact investment is somewhere in the middle, um, but it can, some people do impact investment with the idea of not getting any of their money back, which is sort of more philanthropy. Some people are doing it in the hopes of getting some money back, but maybe not as much as they would if they were investing normally. And some people say that you can do impact investment and earn just as much money as if you were doing normal investment. So there are all of these different types of impact investment and there's no no standard definition. So again, you need to sort of check what it is that you're buying or or following to check it's the right kind of impact investment for you.
0: Mm. We've touched on ETFs already and they've been incredibly popular among younger investors. And over the past 10 years, we have seen those ETFs perform very well. And there's been this rising appetite for low cost passive investing. How will that sit alongside the ESG movement? Because it seems like, and, and you have already alluded to it, that there may be a conflict between the two. Mm.
2: So yes, yeah, so and this is something that BlackRock, in particular, which you know has so many ETFs, has been facing when it's you know when people have said, oh, you need to vote at shareholder meetings, and you know often with passive investors they don't necessarily vote themselves; they'll pass on the vote to a proxy um voter and uh, so they're not always engaging as directly with the companies as as you would hope um but you know increasingly you are seeing these indices being created that are you know passive ESG indices so that's good and that's something you can do but also increasingly among among the passive investor community they are saying we still you know we're still shareholders of these companies and we should still have a voice and Um, you know that they they might start taking action and and you know just you know they don't have to have to stay invested in these companies Um, and you know they're trying to change from within they're trying to make their views known Um, so I think it's what I think the industry is starting to move towards a place where they realize that you can have passive investment and ESG at the same time Um, so which is which is a great thing because I think for a while people like well ooh how's that going to work and actually they've been figuring out how it's going to work so it's going to be okay so just because you're a passive investor doesn't mean you have to
0: be passive yeah exactly yeah that could be a new marketing slogan Mm -hmm. Uh, can you tell us what the term greenwashing is because you talk about it a lot in your
2: book and with good reason it's a it's a massive risk isn't it moving forward so it's basically um, companies or fund managers or funds pretending to be greener than they actually are, um, which is all, you know, leaping on this trend, basically. I mean, everyone in the, fund, in the financial industry knows that green investment is really trendy right now. ESG is really trendy. Um, so, of course, they want a slice of that action. And, you know, sometimes they're specialist investors in this area and that's great, but sometimes they're not. And they're trying to repurpose existing funds to make them seem like their ESG funds. I mean, and, and again, I think this is something where the regulation is sort of racing to catch up because at the moment it's slightly Wild West in terms of the definitions of what you can call ESG and not call ESG. So regulators are are definitely realizing that this is an issue, they're worried about misselling. selling um, they're worried about consumers buying stuff and thinking they're getting one thing and, and actually getting another. So they're definitely moving on this, so it's going to be changing quite soon. But at the moment you do you do have to do your homework and, and, you know, I mean the best thing that you can do really is probably look at the top 10 companies that a fund holds, so that's always going to be public information. and. You can, you know, look at are these companies the sort of companies that I would expect to see in this fund? You know, if you do see oil and gas companies in there or, you know, something like that, it can often be quite a shock um, that they often or, or they just hold companies that don't necessarily seem to be about the environment. You know, you might have Amazon in there or something and and it's confusing. You're like, well, why, you know, why would this company be in there? But sometimes if you research the company, you can see why it might be because they have a really ambitious plan to cut carbon emissions. It might be something like that. Um, So so doing your research is really key. Are there any other tips that you could provide for
0: anybody listening who wants to make their investment portfolio greener and isn't sure where to start and may also be wondering about their workplace pension? Because for a lot of young people, that is the first time that they start investing in the stock market, even if they don't fully realise it.
2: Yeah. So this is one of the things that I look at in the book is that for a lot of people, particularly younger people who haven't started investing yet, their main investment is going to be their pension. And it will probably, you know, hopefully in a workplace pension where they've started already putting some savings in. Um, So you can look at what what you've actually invested in a lot of people don't make an active choice when it comes to their workplace pension, so then they'll be put into the default fund. There are actually a range of fund choices that you can have, um, and the default fund is almost certainly not going to be an ESG fund. Um, But there should be an ESG option. So as a first step, you can move, you can just tell your company, I want to move into the ESG fund that's on offer. So that's one relatively simple, you know, bit of admin, but that's one quick thing that you can do then if you want to take it a step further you can look at the actual esg fund that your company is offering and you know you can use some of the tools on greenwashing that we've learned about and see is it you know is this an esg fund that i think is a good esg fund or is it sort of greenwashing a little bit um and if you think it is a bit greenwashy you can write to your company and say i think you should consider other pension funds and you know people are starting to do this and companies are you know having more clout with this and and they might just go to a different pension fund provider that's providing them with a, a better ESG fund and again it's like this is about a mass movement of you know if everyone starts you know bringing it up with the company then the company is going to be forced to take it seriously and it all starts you know with the with the smaller shareholders or the smaller investors. Thank you so much Alice really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me.
0: So the whole ESG debate has moved on so much in recent years. And I'm interested to know, what was the conversation around green money 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? Did it even exist?
1: There wasn't a conversation, really. It was just um, one or two journalists writing about one or two funds, Mm. um, which were rather eccentric at the time. Um, And I think at that time, and for a long time afterwards, uh, when the thing was just beginning there were very clear dividing lines it was either a green fund or it wasn't and that's what's changed of course Mm. the pressure over the years to recognize that this dimension to investing as being part of a holistic approach yes as opposed to just having a fund with a few you know wind turbine makers in it or whatever Mm. that's what's changed.
0: Mm. And this idea that if you were to invest in these companies that are at the vanguard of solutions to big global problems then they are more sustainable companies with more promising profits and potential in the long term.
1: Very much so and I think that has because of the sophistication of investing now with exchange traded funds you're able to look at themes in technology mm. around renewable you know infrastructure and all sorts of other things which people can choose to sort of invest in specifically. Yes. Which of course was never possible in those days. Mm. There was a much cruder kind of landscape. But there's a problem, isn't there, as far as uh, passive investing is concerned?
0: Yes. And I think we we covered this in the interview with Alice. She devotes a lot of time in her book to talking about the shortcomings of passive investment in ESG. Right, right. And I wonder if you can enlighten us as to what exactly is the difference Mm. between an ETF that is supposedly ESG friendly, Mm. one that... A young investor might reasonably think is a great option mm. if they want to start out in this area and make a difference what's the difference between that and your or garden ETF that's filled with sin stocks and companies doing all sorts of naughty things
1: yeah absolutely um, well tracker funds inevitably can't make decisions they just buy an index um, and if you have an index which is trying to find companies which are good for the environment good social policy good governance um, you can't. Uh, all you can do is screen out the companies um, in in the vice areas, as you said, mm. the sin stocks. Um, and actually, this is what the indexes do, uh, the ESG indexes. You're just getting a negative screening of those companies in alcohol, in tobacco, in weapons, in gambling, mm-hmm. uh, in nuclear power and uh, fossil fuels now these days. So you know, you're not really choosing to make a positive impact in a way. Mm. And the result is, which I was quite amazed when I found out myself this week, that the top 10 holdings in the ESG index fund in the States are exactly the same, you know, stock for stock, as the top 10 holdings in the S&P index ETF.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: S&P 500.
0: I mean, that could mean that the top 10 companies in America are genuinely very progressive and have got mm. great environmental policies and, and are you know, scoring really highly on this whole agenda. But I think you'd have to be pretty naive to believe that.
1: Well, you, know, you might consider that uh, some of the giants, like Amazon, for instance, might mm. be very good in some aspects of their, of their sort of profile and not so good in others, paying tax, mm. labour conditions and so on. And yet the, Amazon is highly likely to be right up at the top there In the ESG index, whereas if you get an active manager who has his own process for really researching these things.
0: Or her process.
1: Or her. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, That's what's changed as well, by the way. Indeed. Um, Then you're going to get something much more likely to be making a positive impact. And that's where the conversation is now, to
0: be Mm, fair. We have to bear in mind that... There are three letters in the acronym ESG. It's Mm. not just about the environment. It's also about social and governance factors. Mm. And they matter an awful lot too. And there was research published recently which showed that actually if you pursue a purely environmental agenda as an investor, you might end up opting for companies that pay less tax, hire fewer workers, and may have some very damaging effects on the fabric of society Mm. and on you know, our our cohesion as as a society. And so I think the conversation will move on so that people will be much more aware of all the different trade-offs because we just do not live in a perfect world. (laughs) I mean, I'd love to think that in the future there will be a company that will be helping to fight climate change and will be paying all its taxes and paying all (laughs) its workers brilliant wages and having an incredibly diverse board and ticking absolutely every box under the sun. But I don't think that's ever going to happen I get really arced whenever I see press releases coming into my inbox saying x percent of millennials want to invest ethically and I think to myself well of course we all want to invest ethically (laughs) if if we can we don't want to go out and torch forests and murder hedgehogs you know we want to be good people but it's hard and I think what would be more helpful is if we could see more hard data about the numbers of people of all ages who are actually investing ethically because surveys can really misrepresent the the true scale of of green investing because people will just say that they're investing in a green way and they don't have to prove
1: it do they? No and every year we have good money week don't we in October Mm -hmm. and every year we get surveys saying that you know huge percentage especially young people you know believe in this kind of investing but there's not the same as actually you know what you're doing with your ISA and the the platforms that report a bigger take-up of these kind of investments obviously that's more reliable mm,
0: but mm. there was
1: another survey actually it was the wisdom council um, reported that over three years there had been no change in people devoting more of their investments to sustainable um, strategies which was really quite surprising so it just it is taking time yes even now yes to so build a head of steam i think
0: that survey clearly caught people on a on an honest day. National Honesty Day. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But I think that we are moving away from that culture that, that you spoke about earlier on where there was a perception of this green ghetto and you only wrote an article about green finance once every few months mm. and it was only a very small minority of kind of hippie people who took mm. it seriously. I remember even when I was working at a trade paper mm. for financial advisors a few years ago... Mm. There was an advisor who said to one of my colleagues, you know, we don't need green indexes. What we need is a SIN index because all those stocks really outperform, don't they? And I wanted to get on the phone to him, take the phone off my colleague and say, we've already got one of those. It's called the FTSE 100. It's called the S&P 500. You know, yeah. we've got plenty of SIN indices, but we haven't got enough green indices.
1: It's much more the FTSE than it is the S&P, to be fair, which is, you know, we've got all the miners and yes. you know, the booze firms and, the, you know, yes. they've got all the, the tech. So that's why uh, there is that kind of disconnect in a way. Yes. But there's also a vice index that someone has drawn up in the past and see how it performs against, oh, really? against, oh. against the goodie index. Yes. Yeah. So um, so but,
0: his idea actually was brought to light. It was
1: brought to light. Um, and I suspect the goodie index is performing slightly better these days than it it used to against the Vice Index which is is quite interesting
0: yes yes and that is rather heartening to hear well it is
1: because it shows that companies are rewarded for these uh, more progressive strategies which is what's supposed to happen
0: Mm, yes that's how shareholder culture is supposed to work that's it for this week's podcast thanks so much to Alice Ross for joining me her book Investing to Save the Planet is out now and you can buy it from all good online bookshops And thanks to Simon for his brilliant input, although I think we'll stick to being podcast co-hosts rather than party partners in Shoreditch. Make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast. Do give us a nice rating and review. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can contact us at readers at youngmoneyblog.co.uk or you can tweet me at Iona Young Money. Thank you very much for listening and see you next week.